I want to welcome you again today to PV Bible Alive. This is the podcast ministry of Parkview Baptist Church in Wichita, Kansas. If you want to hear any other podcast that I've recorded, then you can go to pvbiblealive.com, find our latest podcast in addition to anything else that we have recorded since we began this um, oh, almost a year ago, coming up on that anniversary pretty soon. Anyway, my name is Bruce Hayes, and we are continuing with a message that I delivered at our church entitled, How to Live in a World that Hates You. And this is part three of that series. Part of the reason that I began this series is because of the events that are taking place in our nation. What was happening in 2020 and 2021, now that we've rolled over the new year. And so I began this sermon by saying to the congregation, Welcome to 2021, the first year where we can legitimately say, Hindsight is 2020. I also said that we hope that many of the things that happened in 2020 don't repeat themselves. But as someone has said, next year is 2022. So who knows what will happen. And these years, this last year, has caused a radical change in our Society, And I'm not just talking about the fear over a virus or the subsequent lockdowns and all those things that happen. I'm talking about the election. I'm talking about uh, a radical change in attitude that has taken place in the people of our country. With rioting and everything else that has happened, we have a fundamental change in how people have expressed their attitude toward others who disagree with them, either politically or religiously or culturally or morally. And so we are today going to pick up with this series, How to Live in a World that Hates You. This is part four, Make Disciples. Make Disciples. We're going to be considering Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, along with other passages of Scripture. And those verses say, The first book I wrote, Theophilus, concerned all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was received up, after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the disciples whom he had chosen. To these he also showed himself alive after he suffered by many proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking about God's kingdom. Being assembled together with them, he commanded them, Don't depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which you have heard from me. For John indeed baptized in water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you now restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It isn't for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set within his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. We'll get to that passage of Scripture in a moment, but... To begin with, the question, how do we live in a world that hates us? It seems as though we are more divided than ever. There's more hostility than ever. Republican versus Democrat, male versus female, black versus white, liberal versus conservative, you could say East Coast versus the Midwest, or even West Coast versus the Midwest. And it's even down to seemingly little things. 
There's divisions about whether to pledge allegiance or not. And people are getting angry on both sides of the aisle in, in that regard. There's the mask versus no mask controversy. People are becoming hostile on both sides of the aisle. Vaccine or no vaccine. And despite the fact that some people believe that magically these issues are going to fade with the passing of 2020, I personally think they're going to get worse. So, in light of that, I propose some principles from the book of Acts and scriptural in general about living in such a world where there is hostility toward Christian values. And we've already considered uh, three of these principles. One of them is love those who hate you. The second was live in an attitude of forgiveness. The third, rely on the Word of God. And today we'll move on to the fourth principle, which is to make disciples. The fifth principle that we're going to get to after that is expect to be rejected. Expect to be rejected. But today we're going to consider making disciples. And as always, when we look at this principle, we're going to divide up our sermon into three parts. The principle itself, the narrative, that is, where do we find this principle exemplified in the book of Acts, and the third, the reason for it. Why are we to make disciples? Now today, I'm only going to get into the principle itself, and we will continue with part two of this sermon with the next message. But the principle, the principle for the life of a Christian is we are be it to be about the work of making disciples or followers of Jesus Christ. We just read in Acts chapter 1, that Jesus' final words to his apostles were that they were to go into the world and be witnesses of him. It's, that's not the only place that command is given. There are parallel passages in all four of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 28, Mark chapter 16, Luke 24, and John 20. In Matthew 28, it says that Jesus said to his disciples, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark gives us an abbreviated version of that same charge from Jesus. In chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who disbelieves will be condemned. Luke 24 gives us some other words that were stated in the same context of that command. In chapter 24, verse 45, it says, Then he opened their minds that they might understand the scriptures. He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And John the maverick among the four, and the late gospel written. Of course, he didn't include the same command, but he gave a similar command that Jesus had expressed to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 20, where it says, When he had said this, 
He showed them his hands inside. This was after his crucifixion and his resurrection. The disciples, therefore, were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus, therefore, said to them, Peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. And then the the most famous passage in John, where Jesus has a conversation with Peter and really imparts to Peter the necessity of reaching the world and discipling those that you have reached. When at breakfast, he sitting on the shore with the, the disciples that were gathered there, Simon Peter among them, said to Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? And if you remember this story, he ends up asking this same question three times, all three times. Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And then Jesus replies, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my sheep. And what it was imparting to Peter was the importance of dedicating his life to people who would be the followers of Jesus Christ. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. You can get hung up, Peter, in fishing. You can get hung up in life. There are so many priorities that you can end up dedicating yourself to in a life. But the most important one is that you feed my lambs. Don't forget that priority. And so all four Gospels stress the importance of reaching people for Christ, baptizing them, teaching them what has been commanded in the Word of God, teaching them to live in a life in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then becoming apostles themselves, those who are sent out to do the same, reach others for Christ. It is a key priority in the life of a believer. But what has happened is we have forgotten that priority. And so we get caught up in the fishing of life, just like Peter got caught up in going fishing. We get caught up in what we're used to. And so discipleship kind of gets shoved to the side. But now that we are in this world where people actively are opposed to us, and I'm afraid there are going to be people who are going to actively try to destroy Christianity and faith, or at least the expression of faith in our society, we have to get our priorities straight. One of those priorities is making disciples. Now, interestingly, the only instructions we get from the Lord just before he leaves is baptize people, teach them, and more more specifically, teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Just three things. Baptize and teach all things I've commanded you. It is a very simple instruction for building a movement. I mean, it's, it's profound in its simplicity. There's no complex program There's no elaborate organizational structure that Jesus gives. He doesn't say build a building. He doesn't say start a fundraiser. He doesn't give any instructions. He doesn't say somebody ought to be the president of the organization and then you need a committee and you need a finance office. He doesn't give any of that. So as we consider this last directive and how it relates to living in a world that hates you, Really, what we have to do is ask ourselves the question, have I followed these instructions? Baptize, teach, 
and teach all things. In my church, we ask the question, does this mandate characterize our church? Can we say that we are about the business in this church that I'm pastoring or in your church of baptizing people, teaching them, and ensuring that the teaching is comprehensive regarding all of the Scripture? You see, if the world is going to increase in its hatred toward us, if, as Scripture says, evil men are going to get worse and worse, we have to become more focused. So, what three things are the component parts of disciple-making? Baptism, teaching, and teaching all things. And we're just going to look at those three for this message today. First of them is we're commanded to baptize. Well, what does it mean that we are to baptize? This is an especially important question because traditionally in in my denomination, in the denomination of the church that I pastor now, the only person who baptizes is the preacher. He performs that ordinance. That means when someone comes to faith, we fill up the baptismal with water, and on a Sunday or when the church is gathered, uh, I enter into the water from one side, and the, the person who's being baptized enters in from the other side, and I say a few words, and then I lower them under the water, and then they come up out of the water and then they go back and get back into their dry clothes. So I'm the person that baptizes. But here Jesus says, go into all the world, baptize. You are to baptize. So how are you to do that? What's your responsibility in regard to that? Some churches, that's changing. There are some churches, maybe some, where you've been to services where others in the church can baptize. Possibly an elder or a deacon. In some churches, they allow the parents of a child to baptize them. Or maybe someone who has had a significant hand in that person coming to faith can baptize them. Now, I don't have any objection to that practice as long as two things remain in place. First, baptism has to remain an ordinance conducted by the local church. In other words, it needs to happen under the authority of the local church. I don't believe in going down to the river and just baptizing anyone who comes without connecting them to the church. I, I don't believe in uh, rogue preachers who might go out to a river somewhere and just start baptizing people willy-nilly without having a church that they can, that person can be connected to once they have been baptized. And the reason for that is because baptism is a part of the Great Commission. And it doesn't just say baptize them, it says then teach them and teach them all things I've commanded you. It's a part of discipleship. And so if someone just goes out and baptizes someone in the river and says good luck, then they haven't completed the process of discipleship. It's the responsibility of the Christian to complete that process. So we have to connect baptism to the process of discipleship. And on the other end of it, if I have someone come to my church and say, you know, uh, I believe in Jesus, I, I want to be saved, I confess my sins, I repent of them, I want to be baptized, 
And I say to them, okay, well, I want you to understand that when you're baptized, you become a member of this church. You become a part, and you're making a commitment not only to Jesus Christ, but you are becoming a part of this church. Well, if that person refused and said, well, I don't know if this is my church, then I would say to them, then you need to go find your church and be baptized there. Why? Because baptism connects you to a local body of believers. If a person wanted to be baptized but refused to be a part of a local church, then basically they are refusing discipleship. They're saying, I just want the the entry ticket, as far as they might understand it, but I don't I don't want any long term commitment. Well I'm I'm sorry, but Christianity is a long term commitment. And it's not only a long term commitment to Jesus Christ, it is also a long term commitment to be in his church. To love his people. And so that's number one. I wouldn't have any problem with another person baptizing if they did it in the context of the local church. Somebody who was a part of our church baptizing another person at our church to become a part of our church. And if they wanted to be in a part of another church, then go talk to the people at that church and, and be baptized there. Now, second reason, or second caveat, I should say, to my thinking that it'd be all right if somebody else baptized, is that I don't mind if it's somebody of spiritual significance, but not just a person who wants to baptize another person. For example, uh, let's say that a child comes to faith, you know, a 10, 11, 12-year-old child. And uh, their parent says, well, I want to baptize them. Well, if their parent's not a part of our church, or any church for that matter, then you have, you're taking part of the spiritual significance away from baptism by allowing somebody to do it who has no spiritual interest in the process of a person coming to faith and to growing in that faith. And so uh, I, I wouldn't allow that to happen under my leadership in my church. Just because you want somebody to do it is not a good enough reason to have them do the baptism. But if, on the other hand, there was an individual in our church that had a significant part of your coming to faith in Christ and your growth in Christ, then I wouldn't have a problem with them baptizing you in our baptistry. But let's say, you know, and, and really this is where we're at in my church. I'm still the one who baptizes, and maybe it's just tradition, but that's the way it is. And, you know, I don't see anybody really pushing the idea of going beyond that. And I, I really don't, that's not a big part of my agenda right now either. So let's just say that it remains that way in your church. The pastor's the only one who baptizes. Well, how in the world can you be obedient to the Great Commission? If the Great Commission says to you, go into all the world, baptize, and then teach them to deserve all things that I've commanded you, how can you be obedient to the part that says to baptize people? Well, I want to broaden the idea of what, it, of what baptism is. Let me define that for you as an individual. Because this is what I believe. If you were in a church that limits baptism to the pastor, you need to come under the authority of that church. But your responsibility to baptize means that you draw someone by your words, 
actions, and prayers to the point where they will make a commitment to Christ and that they will follow that commitment with baptism. In other words, you're part of the process. You are coming alongside of people, witnessing to them the best of your ability, sharing your faith with them, encouraging them to make a commitment to Jesus Christ, and then encouraging them after they've made a commitment to Christ to follow through with baptism. That is what your responsibility is. It's not just the pastor of the church's responsibility to guide people toward the baptismal waters. It is the responsibility of everyone in the church. Now, I'm not saying that you are the only one who does that. You may be a teacher in a Sunday school class. You may be the friend of a person. You may be the person that brought them to church. You may be someone who shared scripture with them. And it may not have been explicitly about baptism or anything in that regard, but you have been a part of the steps to leading them to a commitment and to being baptized. So here's my question for you. Have you done this? Has your witness resulted in someone, anyone, coming to salvation, followed by baptism? Now, that's a tough question. You kind of have to stop and think about the people around you, family and friends, the ones you know that have been baptized, and you have to ask yourself, was I a part of it? Or was I just kind of a bystander? And I hope that as we talk about this, that you can think of at least one person who has gone to the baptismal waters that you were a part of their getting there. Now, will every Christian be able to think of somebody? Not necessarily. Because of circumstances, you're not going to know everyone that you've contributed uh, to spiritually who made a commitment of their life to Christ. Uh, sometimes somebody you encounter may move on with their life, move away, and you never know whenever they actually come to faith in Christ. There are also people who reject the gospel. And you may spend a lifetime sharing your faith, and it would seem that there's no visible response anywhere you look. So I guess the real test is, have you been faithful in sharing your faith? Let me point you to a passage of Scripture in Matthew 13, where Jesus shares a parable of a sower scattering seed. The pictures of a first century farmer going out into his tilled field and scattering seed. And this is different than uh, the way we plant today, whether in a garden or a farmer planting a field. This is somebody that literally is carrying a bag full of seed and walking across the field, and it's probably corn or wheat, and literally just reaching in by the handfuls, pulling out seed, and then just tossing it out across the ground. And the reason they did it that way was because they needed to fill the whole field and... It was too painstaking a process to try and plant single seeds at a time if you were trying to get a field full of wheat or a field full of corn. So they just scattered it. Now, 
Here's the question. What is the chief responsibility of the sower? The one who is planting in that way. It is to scatter the seed. I mean, that's your job. Scatter the seed. Now, you expect it, if you're planting in that way, that at the end of the day, the seed bag that you're carrying is going to be empty. That's what you're out there to do. Throw all that seed out into the field. You don't want the farmer coming home with a full bag of seed and saying, well, you know, I only planted a couple of seed. Let's see how that goes and decide if I'm going to plant more. No. His job is to plant all the seed that he's got. Now, he knows that not all the seed that he throws out there is going to successfully grow. As the parable says, some of the seed is going to be choked by weeds and thorns. Some of it's going to fall on earth that is too shallow to support growth. Some of it's going to be devoured by birds. But the farmer also knows this. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 23. What was sown on the good ground, this is he who hears the word and understands it, who most certainly bears fruit and produces some 100 times as much, some 60, some 30. What he knows is that despite the fact that some of the seed goes to waste, there will be seed that grows and it will multiply sometimes a hundred times what you sowed, sometimes 60, sometimes 30 uh, times. The farmer knows there will be a crop if he's faithful sowing seed. I believe the same is true of a Christian. All true Christians will bear Great Commission fruit. All true Christians will have such an influence on their world that over their lifetimes, some will come to faith because of the witness of that person. It may be 30 people come to faith. It may be 60. It may be 100. Or it may be less. And a lot of it is out of our control. But part of it depends on how much seed we are sowing. Are we actually out there throwing the seed out into the field? Or are we kind of reserving it, trying to particularly pick the part of the field that we think is absolutely going to grow? planting one seed or two seeds and then saying, well, let's see how that goes. If that's successful, then maybe I'll plant some more. No, it's your job to plant seed. So it's your job to, to make disciples, to, to help people come to that place where they are baptized. And I'm not just talking about if you were the one who led them in praying for God's salvation. I'm not saying that you have to have been the one who opened your Bible to verses about salvation and personally shared those with the person who followed through with baptism. What I'm saying is you will have been a part of somebody's life that came to faith. You were scattering the seed. Now, practically any time that this subject comes up in a sermon, the the topic of witnessing, the topic of discipleship. A lot of times it brings shame to people who hear that sermon. You've never seen a congregation so quiet as to when you're preaching about witnessing. It's been said in preacher circles, there's no quicker way to cause shame in a congregation than to preach about witnessing and soul winning. And personally, I feel that same shame because I haven't done near as much as I know that I should have. 
But see, it's not my intent to bring you shame. Rather, it's my intent to bring you to the place of resolve. Because in the world in which we live, in the America that is changing before our very eyes, we have to resolve to do these things that are thoroughly and completely Christian and to set ourselves apart from the world in which we're living. If we do not, that world will swallow us up. Not only individually, but the church will be swallowed up. Now, we have to resolve to be more loving, forgiving, to be more involved in meditating on the Word, and as we look at today, discipling. So back to the question. Can you think of someone who has walked into the baptismal waters in part as a result of your words, prayers, or actions? And I'd really like to give you some credit. You have children. You have grandchildren. You've been a part of Sunday school classes, either as a teacher or a person that's attending. You have family. You have friends. You have people that you fellowship with in the church. You have people you've influenced. Uh, I can think of one individual in my church who has been most recently baptized. And practically everyone in that church who, who's, who've been there, we're a small church, has had an impact on this person's life. So when they went into the baptismal waters, everyone there was a part of it. Now, it may not be a huge number of people that you can think of. Probably isn't. Realistically speaking, as we live in the day that we're living, it's becoming more and more difficult to see people come to a decision for Christ. There's more obstacles in the way. More belief differences. There's more that they have to get past. We don't live in a society anymore that agrees with the Word of God. And so we end up kind of like Paul. I don't know if you remember this passage of Scripture or not, but Paul, as he got to the end of his life and he wrote to Timothy, a letter to Timothy. Timothy was his disciple. And he said in chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, he was writing to Timothy, he says, Be diligent to come to me soon, for Demas left me, having loved this present world, and went to Thessalonica, Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Now, what he's saying there is, number one, one guy left because he basically walked away from the faith. Now, the other two guys that he mentions, Crescens and Titus, um, it doesn't mean that they left the faith. They just weren't with him at that time. They weren't present with him. In particular, Titus, we end up with a book in the, the Bible entitled Titus. So, I highly doubt that Titus left the faith. Or else he wouldn't have had a book in the New Testament named for him. But look at what a verse says in verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Then take Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. Think about that. As Paul got to the end of his life, and uh, he is in prison for his faith, despite the fact that he was the most influential person in Christianity outside of Jesus Christ himself, 
Paul wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Despite that fact, when he comes to the end of his life and he is in jail, there's only one other Christian with him. Now, does that mean that everybody else has forsaken him? We don't know that they've forsaken him. Maybe they just aren't thinking about him. He is not on the top of their priority list. But I want you to just think about that a second. Because just because you can't think of a large number of people to say, boy, these people are in the faith because of me or partly because of me, and they're going gung-ho for God, and we're still working together, I'm still discipling them, and iron sharpens iron, and we're, we're in the Word of God, all that kind of stuff. You may say, well, I don't, I don't know if I have anybody like that. Well, even Paul himself came to the end of his life. Only Luke is with me. Only Luke is with me. Now, I can say myself, at this point in my life, the number that I've seen come to faith directly because of me, now we know it's God that does it, but he uses people. That number is small. The number of people I've baptized is small. And so... Sometimes, you know, you think, well, did I really do anything of value in this world? But here's the point. Your job is to disciple. Your job is to spread the seed and to leave the results to God. I personally think that when we get to heaven, we'll all discover a bigger number that we had a part in their lives. But my real question for myself is, have I been faithful with the seed that I was supposed to scatter? Have I been faithful? Well, that's the major part of our sermon. That the second point is that not only are we to baptize, we are also to teach. To teach. To disciple is to teach. Now, you may say, well, I'm not a teacher. Let me again simplify this for us all. What it means to teach. And I know this is cliche. I think that you can spell teach T-I-M-E. Time. Time. You see, you don't have to be a teacher to teach. It is every Christian's responsibility to teach. Now, I'm not saying that everybody ought to be a teacher. Not necessarily should everybody be in the official capacity of being a teacher. There are some people who are gifted as teachers, and some are not gifted as teachers. But as far as the responsibility to the believer to teach... And it is your responsibility to teach. It means that you should search for and follow up on opportunities to spend spiritually rich time with someone. Let me say that again. You are to search for and follow up on opportunities to spend spiritually rich time with someone. Spend time with them, and spend time with them that is spiritually rich. What do I mean by that? It's not just time sitting watching Netflix. It's not just time sitting and playing a game or doing whatever. That has value in friendship and becoming closer to a person, but it's not spiritually rich. What that means is you are attempting to connect the dots for somebody between this life and eternal life. You're trying to impart spiritual wisdom to them. 
And it may come in a sentence. It may come in a, 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 an intense Bible study. It may come by sharing Christian music together. But there's going to be something spiritual happening when you're with that person in order for it to be really the teaching that is covered in this command. Our second responsibility after baptism is to teach. It could be spending time with them in Bible reading, in prayer, conversation about spiritual things. It can be searching for answers, listening to problems and encouraging them spiritually. It may be pointing out error. Teaching involves, as I said, connecting the dots between life and eternal life. And some, I would say, are involved in what I'd call an Andrew ministry. They may say, you know, I really don't know how to say things to people. I, I don't uh, get everything right. I, I don't know all of the theology behind Christianity. I just fumble up the answers. Well, that doesn't mean, number one, that you don't still attempt to give those answers. But number two, some people are involved in what I'd call Andrew ministry. The Apostle Andrew was known for one thing. He brought people to Jesus. You know, we don't have many of Andrew's words recorded. But we do have this. When he encountered someone who needed answers, he took the initiative to bring them to Jesus. And that same thing holds true for us. You may not have all the answers, but you must be willing to help someone find the answers. In other words, your part of teaching may be looking something up for them, helping them to search the Scripture. It may be connecting them with a pastor or a teacher who does know the answers. It may be looking something up for them. It is an attempt to, to get them to grow spiritually, to come alongside of them. And as I said, it can, it can be a single sentence, but I think teaching, as part of the discipleship process, happens all the time. Somebody comes into the faith, they are baptized and then they're to be surrounded by people in that church and outside from other churches who will encourage them, correct them, show them Scripture, talk about God, talk about Christ, all those things. And so by doing that, they are fulfilling their responsibility to teach to teach. It means purposely bringing up God and Jesus and the Bible and the church in conversation. Now again, I don't know about you, but this thought causes me some shame. It forces me to ask myself, how many spiritual conversations, even online, have I been a part of this week? Sometimes even at church. Or did we just talk about the weather, the news, or what we did over the holidays? So we're still on the principle. The principle is that we are to be about the business of baptizing and teaching. Now the third part of that is that we are to teach all things. Teach all things that I have commanded you. Now, think about that. Consider it. It is our responsibility to cover all things Jesus commanded with those with whom we have been entrusted. All things. I mean, let's make that simple. Number one, baptize means to guide someone to a commitment to Christ. Number two, teach them means to spiritually spend rich spiritual time with that person. Look for opportunities to connect their life to eternal life. And now, teach all things that I command you. 
means that any relationship that we have with another Christian is first a relationship of mutual spiritual encouragement and exhortation. We are supposed to be teaching and being taught all things that Jesus commanded. Consider that. All things. What does that entail? Well, well, you know, we got the four Gospels here. That's the life of Jesus. Is that what it's talking about? Of course, definitely. What about the New Testament, the letters that Paul wrote, and the revelation and the future coming kingdom of the Lord? Surely that's a part of all that Jesus taught as well, because the followers of Jesus were describing how we are to live out what they learned at the feet of Jesus. What about the Old Testament? Is that part of the all things that we're supposed to teach? Yes, because it is what the disciples and Jesus called Scripture. And it is what told us about Jesus before he ever set foot on earth. And so we need to know it all. So our commandment is to evangelize people so that they believe and follow through with baptism and to teach them by word and example everything that's in the Bible. Everything. Everything? The whole word of God? Yes. That's our job. You may say, well, I know the preacher's supposed to do that. What about me? How can I preach and teach or the whole Word of God? Well, that's why this is a life ambition, a life commission. That's why it's not enough for you to drag someone to church on Sunday, on Mother's Day, and hope that they get it on that day. Your life is to be the unfolding of the Word of God before people that live around you, not only in action but in word. Our commandment is to teach them everything. We, we need time alone in the Word. We need friends who come alongside of us and share in the fellowship of the Word. We need family time in the Word. Because there's so much there that we need to know. And it takes a lifetime or better to come to the place where we know it. It's one of the chief frustrations of being a preacher. There's never enough time to, to preach everything. It'd be my life's ambition to preach through the entire Bible. But I haven't even gotten through the entire New Testament yet. Why? Because there's a ton of material there. And so it's important that we grasp that we need to be in the Word and sharing the Word. Now here's my question. Are we getting that done? Sadly, no. By way of confession, in many Christian households, mine included, I think the kids are more acquainted with the characters from the TV show The Office than they are with the characters on the pages of Scripture. And that's a sad commentary. Um, and just by an example of that, and this is what we're going to close with today. As I think about this last year, 2020, and all the things that went along with it, school closures, and most of you know that I'm a public school teacher. Well, one of the main things that's been exposed by this school shutdown has been how much of a parent's responsibility has been handed off to the public schools. Our kids are quote-unquote learning remotely, but the failure rate of these same kids is overwhelming. And I know why the students are failing. 
I mean, we can blame a lot of things. We can blame the lack of training on technology, both for the student and the teachers. But I think the biggest problem is a lack of personal accountability for what these students do. And I'm talking about parents. And the reason there's no accountability is because the parents are either one of three things. They are absent, apathetic, or ignorant. Number one, they may be absent. In other words, they have to work. They can't be there when their kids are online, supposedly participating in school. They may be absent in that they just don't go and work with their kid when the kid's on the computer. they got other things they've got to do. It's that, and it may be the second thing, which is apathy. That may be in addition to being absent. That means they, they don't care. They think it's the school's job to ensure that their kids get an education. And so whenever it doesn't happen, they say, well, you know, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. They're apathetic about it. Or they are ignorant. And I'm not implying that they're stupid. What I'm saying is they just don't know. They don't even know how to look up their child's grades. When their kid has a subject matter, even before uh, the lockdown and the, the stay-at-home orders, there are parents that struggled with the subject matter that their children were being taught. They, they didn't know how to do algebra or whatever it was that their students needed to know. But now you compound that with the fact that it's now on the computer and you have to be able to work with this device in front of you. You have to know different programs and how to get in them and how to put your work in. Um, there's a lot of factors involved there and there are parents that just are clueless. They don't, they don't have internet in their homes and they don't know how to use it. Whatever it is, one of those three factors brings about the place where these kids are failing and nobody's there to come back behind them and say, no, you're not going to fail. I'm going to ensure that you don't. And uh, pushing and pulling them towards success. So, But what happened is slowly over the years, parents, myself included, have passed the job of education to someone else. That's somebody else's job. Well, then along came COVID-19. And whether you agree with the schools going virtual or not, when all school was moved to the computer, that move exposed what has been the situation all along. That many, if not most, parents were not involved at all in their children's education. Now, why did I tell you all that? Because I want to submit to you that the church is in the same boat in regard to discipleship. Matthew 28 tells us that our chief responsibility for life in this world as Christians, as individual Christians, is to make disciples. But over the years, we have passed off that task to the church. And by the church, I mean the corporate gathering place, the organized meetings. We've been living in an era where we thought that discipleship meant going out and gathering a crowd, hosting an event, getting them enrolled in Sunday school, discipleship training. Let's get them to church services. Let's get our kids to vacation Bible school. Let's get them to youth camp because that's where the training will take place. In other words, we didn't do it at home. We expected it to be done at church, at youth camp, at whatever else we sent them to. 
In other words, making disciples meant getting them to church. And that included our own children. And so discipleship left the home. It was no longer regarded as an individual responsibility. And so it kind of faltered. It didn't just kind of falter, it did falter. We have a semblance of discipleship in the church. But a lot of times those kids that are in youth groups and younger, there was a book that came out years ago called Already Gone. And what it implied was that the kids in your middle school and high school youth groups, we always think, well, they went off to college and in college they heard all this crazy stuff and then they left God premise of the book was they left God a long time before that. It's just that now that they got to be 18 and on their own, they were free to walk away. And that's what happened. But now that COVID-19 comes along, everything shuts down in the church. Sunday school, Wednesday activities, fellowship dinners, youth camps, vacation Bible schools. Everything that we called discipleship shut down. Now, we have had some limited success in our own church with continuing some of those same activities. But look at where we are. The state has begun to mandate that we not meet as a church. And it appears that more of that is coming. The fear of a virus has reduced our services to Sunday morning, and that in limited number. And we, like our public school counterparts, are discovering that the students' disciples are failing. And my friends, it's for the same reason that our public schools are failing. It's because the home has failed. Discipleship is a personal responsibility for every Christian. And they're not just to be exposed in the, in the church setting. Spiritually speaking, the Christian home is the hub for personal discipleship. And the individual Christian is the chain link that holds the whole thing together. If a majority of Christians quit discipling, then the future of Christianity is a wasteland. Discipleship disappears. And so we've got to get back to the place where each of us individually makes discipleship a priority in our homes and in our lives. And of all the things that I've mentioned about living in a world that hates us, I personally think this one hits the hardest. Because if we're going to survive in a world that hates us, we have to double down on all these things. We've got to become more like Christ in our love towards others. We have to become more like Christ in our forgiveness. We have to become more like Christ in, in knowing and understanding and reading and meditating on and sharing the Word of God. And we have to become more like Christ in giving ourselves to discipling people around us. Jesus dedicated himself to 12 men to make sure that they could carry on the message to the next generation. If we don't do the same, it's going to disappear. America is not going to be the quote-unquote Christian nation that it supposedly has been over the last generation, though that's a questionable proposition. Well, that really is the principle. A lot of time on 
one small thing, but it is key, is important. Next time we're going to look at the narrative and the reason. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your calling on our lives. And Lord, I experience and feel the, the conviction that comes from studying your word and knowing that you gave us such a simple directive. Baptize, teach, teach all things. And I too have gotten hung up in fishing. Lord, we pray that you touch our hearts and lead us to be what you desire from us. Lead us to people that we need to be a part of their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.